we emerge now and return back to the main character of the story in this section of Genesis, which is Father Abraham, moving away from a focus on Sodom's sinfulness and Lot's worldliness, we now return our focus to the father of the faithful. But as we do, we're confronted once again with the weakness and the faltering of his faith. This man who is praised by New Testament writers as a giant of the faith demonstrates a weakness of faith here that is truly remarkable. But the primary thing that's on display for us in Genesis chapter 20 is the grace of God. And in these pages, in these verses, we will see a glorious portrait of the grace of God. And so in this, we are reminded that our only hope for rescue from sin and judgment and the wrath of God is not our own righteousness or our own ability to be faithful. Our only hope is the grace of God. And so let's behold this portrait together as we read Genesis chapter 20. This is the word of God. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself say, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is, my, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place at which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. 
To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the privilege to worship you this morning. And now as we turn to your word, we turn to this thankfully. We thank you for this book that we hold in our hands, knowing that it is your very breath. Being as it is your breath, Father, we ask that you would speak to us from it, that you would reveal to us yourself, and particularly in this passage, that you would show us your grace to sinners like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can divide chapter four in, excuse me, chapter 20 into four sections. Uh, first of all, in the first two verses, we see Abraham's deception to Abimelech. And then in verses three through seven, we see Abimelech's dream. In verses eight through 13, Abimelech confronts Abraham for his deception to him. And then in the closing verses, Abraham then intercedes for Abimelech. Now, these four sections are going to provide for us this morning a framework, really the frames of a portrait on which there is a canvas and the canvas on which there is a portrait of the grace of God. So in each of these sections, we're going to see a picture of the grace of God. So we turn first to the first section in verses 1 and 2. That is Abraham's deception. We're told that from there, Abraham journeyed toward the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. So it says that he journeyed from there. Well, from where? The last time we saw Abraham, he was on a hilltop overlooking the destruction of the cities of the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah. The same hilltop on which he had been the very day before, interceding on their behalf that God would spare them from judgment. This was by the oaks of Mamre, the trees under which Abraham had pitched his tent, and under which the two visitors, the two angels, and the Lord himself had appeared to Abraham and his wife Sarah in chapter 18. Now, we don't know why he left from there, but he did, and now we find him sojourning in and living in the Sinai Peninsula. And when he gets there, he tells the people that Sarah, his wife, is actually his sister. And so the king of that land, this Abimelech that we're introduced to here, according to the custom of that land at that time, he sent for her and takes her into his harem. Now, as soon as we hear Abraham say of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. We cringe, don't we? Because we know that Abraham is committing the exact same blunder as he did back in chapter 12. And we're like, Abraham, did you not learn anything? Here you are again, committing the exact same sin again. Back in chapter 12, as you might recall, Abraham and Sarah had fled down to Egypt 
because there had been a famine in the land of Canaan. And, and, and because Abraham was not trusting God to provide for him and stay in the promised land, he left that land and he fled down to Egypt. And when he got there, he did the exact same thing that he does here in chapter 20. He lies to Pharaoh and he tells Pharaoh, she is my sister. And in that passage, we learn why he did this. He did this because he was afraid that Pharaoh would want his wife so badly that he would kill him and take her anyways. And so he lies. And out of fear, he tells Pharaoh that she is his sister, not his wife. And the very same thing happens. Pharaoh takes Sarah um, and brings her into his harem. And then in that story, he and his household are struck by plagues. And he discovers the deception of Abraham in lying to him. Then Pharaoh, in that story, the pagan Egyptian, rebukes Abraham, the father of the faithful, and kicks him out of Egypt. And now he's doing it again. He's committing the exact same blunder, the exact same sin. And yet we recall what Moses says of Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This guy who committed this sin, this grievous sin on his own wife back in chapter 12, and and God knew he would do it again, it is said of him that he believed the Lord and the Lord counted counted it to him as righteousness. That phrase, that That verse is quoted verbatim four different times in the New Testament. Twice in Romans chapter 4, once in Galatians 3, and once in James chapter 2. That Abraham was counted as righteous. That word means acceptable, good enough, justified because of his faith and belief in the Lord. And it's the passage from Galatians 3 that is particularly noteworthy here. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul is confronting the Galatians for trying to perfect in the flesh that which he had accomplished by faith. And then he uses Abraham as an example. And he says this in Galatians 3, beginning of verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that's in quotes there because that's a direct quote from Genesis 15, verse 6. Then he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We've seen this before, but it's it's worth repeating again. What is it? that Abraham had faith in that was then counted to him as righteousness. According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, it was the gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. It says in Galatians 3, verse 8, and the, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's us, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. 
saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So the gospel was that God was going to send a a seed, the seed of the woman that we read about back in Genesis chapter 3. And that this seed was going to come through Abraham, through him. And this child of promise would lead to the blessing of all nations. Because that seed would be the one who would crush the head of Satan and remove the guilt of sin and judgment and death from all those who would come to him in faith. But what we need to see here this morning from this passage is that though Abraham was counted as righteous by faith in the gospel, he was not sinless. He was not made perfect. I believe this is why Paul lifts him up, lifts Abraham up in Romans chapter 4 as the poster child of a sinner saved by grace. He's been counted as righteous, regarded as covenantally acceptable, covenantally righteous, but not because he's got his own righteousness, not because he's been made sinless. Here he's making the exact same blunder that he did in chapter 12, the exact same sin. No, Abraham is not sinless, and yet he is counted as righteous by the grace of God because of his faith in the gospel, because of his faith in the coming Christ, that the coming Messiah would achieve the righteousness that he knew he never could and that we never could. I'm so glad that the Bible doesn't whitewash our heroes in the faith. Here is the father of Isaac that we'll see born next chapter. The first of the Jewish patriarchs, the father Abraham, the beginning of the nation of Israel, God's chosen. And he's not only sitting, he's committing the exact same sin that he was so publicly denounced for some 25 years earlier in Egypt. I'm so glad that the Bible shows us our heroes in the faith with their warts and their weaknesses and doesn't try to hide them. Not that we rejoice in Abraham's sin or that we're somehow sadistically glad that he is a sinner, but that we rejoice in the knowledge that God has shown him grace to count this sinner righteous in spite of his unrighteousness. This gives us hope, does it not? This gives us hope because we know that none of us is righteous. We are all of us sinners as well. And yet, just as Abraham was counted righteous by faith in the gospel, we can be too. So believers this morning, this should elicit in us a thankfulness for God's grace But it should also elicit in us a renewed fervor to live for God's glory. Because I believe that there is a connection here between this display of God's grace and our sanctification, our growing in holiness. The more keen my awareness is of the grace that God has shown to me, a sinner, the more likely I am to live for his glory instead of my own. So for believers here this morning, don't ever get over the grace that God has shown to you 
a sinner. Don't ever take that for granted. Don't ever get over that. Don't ever not be overwhelmed by that. Instead, understand that it is only by God's grace that we are made righteous because of the righteousness credited to us on his behalf. And allow that, that grace, the grace that God has shown us, be a fuel that fuels our desire and our affection for him and our desire to live for his glory instead of our own and, our, and as fuel to pursue holiness. And so for unbelievers this morning, there is a great hope here for you as well. Because though your life is riddled with sin, you can be made, as we said earlier, whiter than snow. But that righteousness is not yours by trying to clean up your life enough for God to accept you. Instead, it is yours only by faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. That is great hope. That is the hope of salvation. So we move now to the second section in this story, that of Abimelech's dream. After taking Sarah away into his harem, God now shows up to Abimelech in a dream. And he says in verse 3, Behold, you're a dead man. You're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now this is news to Abimelech because he's under the impression that she's not married. But now she finds out that she is, in fact, married. She is taken. And it's not only apparently Israelite law that forbids adultery, but also Canaanite law, at least in this area of Canaan, which is probably Philistia. And so in this area, it is also out, adultery is also outlawed and punishable by death. And so Abimelech mounts his defense in verse 4. He says, now Abimelech had not approached her, that is, he had not consummated the relationship. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? So Abimelech believes that if he's guilty, then this is punishable by death, but not just for himself, but for all the people of his kingdom. And so we, we begin to see in this pagan king a healthy fear of this Israelite God, a healthy fear of God, and so he proclaims his innocence, and then he proceeds to explain why he believes himself to be innocent in verse 5 and following. So did he, referring to Abraham, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself say, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. We see the grace of God displayed in incredible ways in these few verses. We see God's grace for Abimelech and also for Sarah and most predominantly for Abraham himself. He shows grace to Abimelech in supernaturally intervening to prevent him from committing adultery. The Lord says to him, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. In other words, Abimelech, it wasn't you who stopped from committing adultery. It wasn't you who stopped yourself. 
I providentially intervene precisely because I knew the kind of sexually immoral man that you were. And I knew that you would do this. And so I providentially intervened and prevented you from doing so. I stopped you. And we don't know how God stopped Abimelech, but he did. He said, I did not let you touch her. And this was gracious of God to intervene on on Abimelech's behalf and prevent him from continuing in that sin. And it is gracious and merciful of God to intervene in our lives to sometimes prevent us from completing the sin that we have set our eyes on. We see him doing this for Abimelech here. And Abimelech is even warned by God. He he gives him a warning. He says, there's a way of escaping the death penalty here. You need to return the man's wife. And he tells him that this man is a prophet. Now, this is the first time that we see this word in the scriptures. First time we see the word prophet in the Bible. But interestingly, Abraham is called a prophet here, not because he tells the future or because he tells what God is going to say or do. He's called a prophet because he mediates. He intercedes. We saw him interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah back in chapter 18, and now he intercedes for Abraham for Abimelech in chapter 20. And so it is merciful of God here to Abimelech to prevent him from continuing. But God also shows grace to Sarah here in rescuing her. He protects her. Sarah really is the only one who's innocent in this story. Abimelech is an innocent, though he claims to be. Abraham, as we'll see, is an innocent, though he will give us a litany of excuses for his actions and lack of trusting God. But Sarah certainly seems to be innocent. Now, Abimelech says that she lied. She says she's my brother, but then we're having to take his word for it. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that she said that. But even if she did, we learn in verse 13 that it's Abraham, her husband, that requires her to lie and sin. But clearly in this story, she is the passive victim, kidnapped, given away by her husband, and nearly violated by this Philistine king. But this is one of those instances where God supernaturally and graciously intervenes to rescue the innocent victim. But God also shows grace to Abraham here, and that's the greatest display of amazing grace in this passage. Because Abraham is the one who gets himself into this mix. This is a predicament of his own making. He's the one who puts himself in this mess. He's the one who didn't learn from his failure in Egypt. He's the one who isn't trusting God and his promises to protect them. He's the one who lies about Sarah being his sister. And as we said in verse 13, he's the one who requires his wife to lie for him. It's his requirement of her that if they ever face this situation for her to say, She's my bro- he is my brother. So he's brought all this trouble on himself. This is a mess of his own making. And yet God graciously bails him out. He graciously shows up to Abimelech, this pagan king in a dream, and warns him, don't you follow through on this. 
Well, this woman is married. She's married to one of my prophets. So you need to return him. And in so doing, he delivers his wife back to Abraham unscathed. And Abraham did absolutely nothing to deserve this kindness on the part of God. Friend, this is, this is sometimes what God does for his children. Not all the time. But sometimes he graciously intervenes to bail us out. He miraculously intervenes to spare us from the consequences of our own actions, even when the mess that we're in is one of our own making. And we could probably go around the room this morning and hear testimony after testimony of how God has been gracious to us in that sense and intervene to prevent us from bearing the full force of the consequences that were due to us. But all of those instances and displays of God's grace point to a larger portrait of God's grace because it points to the cross where we deserve the full weight of our own guilt. And yet God miraculously, providentially, sovereignly, graciously intervened so that we would not. And he took the weight of our sin upon himself and we see that and we're reminded of that in this grace that was shown to Abraham in returning Sarah to himself so now in the third section Abraham is going to confront or excuse me Abimelech is going to confront Abraham for this deception verse 8 so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things and the men were very much afraid Now, I'm struck here by the contrast between Abraham, the chosen, and Abimelech, the pagan king. Abimelech here, this pagan Canaanite, and all of the the servants in his kingdom, in his household, demonstrate and display a, a much greater fear of God, fear of Yahweh, than Abraham, the father of the faithful, does. It's ironic, and the irony continues as this pagan king now rebukes Abraham for his lack of faith. Look at verse 9 and following. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Here's the pagan king rebuking the father of the faithful. Verse 10, And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see? that you did this thing. And what's happening here is that God is graciously using this pagan king to expose the sin in Abraham's heart and life. Even as Abraham works so hard to conceal that sin. Listen to now as Abraham begins to mount his defense of excuses and explanations. And, And what we'll see is Although some of his excuses seem to be plausible on the surface, what he's doing is concealing and hiding his sin, which is a lack of trust in God and a focus on just himself. His first excuse is in verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought, man, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, if we step back, that seems plausible. That seems a plausible excuse because, after all, these are pagan idol worshipers. Perhaps much like the pagan idol worshipers that Abraham had known about in Sodom. And he 
knew very well what had happened to them. And so he was afraid, and he was afraid for his life that they might kill him in order to get to his wife. But no matter how plausible that excuse might seem, his sin under the surface is not trusting God. It's a, a lack of faith in God. And again, it's incredibly ironic here that there ended up being more fear of God in these pagans than there was in Abraham himself. They feared offending this Israelite God while Abraham had no fear of God. Instead, what did he fear? He feared the people. He filled the people of Gerar. His second excuse is in verse 12. Besides, Abraham says, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So now he tries to get off on a technicality. He tells a half-truth. She was his half-sitter, but she was also his wife. J.I. Packer says, A half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is simply a complete untruth. A half-truth masquerading as a whole truth really is just a whole lie. And that's his excuse. Abraham's third excuse is in verse 13. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, I said to my wife, this is the kindness that you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, He's my brother. In other words, so this was his plan. And and now 25 years later, here's his excuse for what he does here. Well, I've been doing this for 25 years, and it's worked thus far. You've heard that two wrongs don't make a right. Well, 25 years of doing it wrong doesn't make it right either. And notice, too, how he tries to blame shift to God here. He says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, and now he's blaming it all on God. It's God's fault. Again, the lack of the fear of God in Abraham here is remarkable. But Abraham's sin is just as it was before. He's not trusting God to keep his promises. And furthermore, he's only thinking about himself. He's only looking out for himself. He's not considering his wife's safety and his wife's purity. He's certainly not considering the dangerous predicament that he's putting Abimelech and the people of his kingdom in. He's only thinking of himself. He abandons faith in a sovereign God, and he bases his decisions and life actions on a selfish sense of self-preservation. As the case has been since we have been looking at the story of Abraham ever since chapter 12, if we are going to identify with anyone in this story, we ought to identify ourselves with Abraham because we too are the ones who falter in our faith, who struggle to have a complete trust in God, who when we sin and we're confronted by sin, We try to conceal it, we try to hide it, we try to excuse it, and we try to blame shift. So this is us here in Abraham. And the truly remarkable display of God's grace in this section is that in spite of his attempts to conceal his own sin, Yahweh will not let him get away with it. 
Yahweh will not let his sin go undetected. He uses a pagan king to bring his sin to the light so that it would be exposed and so that it would die. And God did this for Abraham, not out of spite, but out of love, out of covenantal love for him. Church, if God didn't love us, then he wouldn't expose our sin. He would let our weak excuses and our weak attempts at concealing our sin be successful. But he does love us. And so he doesn't allow our sins to remain hidden. God used a pagan king to expose Abraham's sin. What will he use to expose ours? But expose it he will because he loves us and he wants to separate us from that which will kill us. And there again, we could go around this room and hear testimony after testimony of how God shows his covenantal love to us in that way as he refuses to allow our sin to go undetected, lest we cherish that sin and lest we die by that sin. So this is another brushstroke of God's grace that we see here. And then the fourth and final section of this passage is in verses 14 through 18 where Abraham intercedes for Abimelech. And I just want you to see these brushstrokes of God's grace in these verses. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And we ask, what did Abraham do to deserve this kindness? Absolutely nothing. This is grace. Verse 15, or excuse me, at the end of verse 14, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Again, a brushstroke of grace. Verse 15, Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. So not only does he give him sheep and oxen and servants, but now he gives him land. In the story in chapter 12, Pharaoh kicked him out of Egypt, but now with Abimelech, he says, my land is your land. Live wherever you please. Grace. Verse 16. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. So a thousand pieces of silver was literally a thousand shekels of silver. And it was an incredible sum of money. Incredible sum. A common laborer in that day earned half a shekel per month. And in order for them to earn a thousand shekels, it would take 167 years. In today's monetary value, this would be about $3.2 million. It's an incredible sum and a beautiful picture of God's undeserved favor. Verses 17 and 18, then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So we learn here that as a consequence of kidnapping Sarah, God had closed up the wombs of Abimelech's wife and his concubines. And so now this too is a display of God's grace. But not just to Abimelech as he heals his wife 
and his female slaves. They're healed by, uh, of God's curse. But it's also a display of God's grace to Abraham. Because even after Abraham fails yet another test of faith, God still uses, chooses to use him as he prays and heals Abimelech's family through Abraham's prayer. See, God could have just healed him. He didn't have to use Abraham's prayer. But instead, he reminds Abraham here that he still intends to use him. That he still intends to use Abraham. But, but Abraham's usefulness to God in his kingdom purposes is not dependent on his righteousness It's not dependent on him being faithful in each and every circumstance. It's not because he's worthy of being useful in God's kingdom or because he deserves another shot. It is simply by God's sovereign grace that he determines to use Abraham in spite of his lack of faith. I'm so grateful that God deals with us in the same way. Our sinfulness is wretched, but our usefulness to God in his kingdom is not dependent on what we deserve. And thank goodness for that, because if it were, none of us would be useful in God's kingdom. I look at the ministry that God has given to me, and I don't understand it. I don't deserve the honor and privilege of serving as a pastor in this church. I look at my life, and like the Apostle Paul, I see myself as the chief of sinners. And yet he has chosen to use me. And that is a display of God's grace to me. So we see this portrait of the grace of God in this chapter. But how should we respond to it? Let me give you three very simple ways. One is that we should, quite simply, we should be aware of it. We should notice it. We should see it. We should see God's displays of grace in our own lives and thank him for it. Grace is undeserved favor. It is undeserved kindness. It's when we get what we don't deserve. And in this passage, we see God's undeserved favor all over the place. God doesn't always do this in our lives, but sometimes, as in the story with Abraham, he pulls back the veil so that we might see the displays of God's grace in our life. His showering us with undeserved favor and kindness. And church, it is meant to overwhelm us with gratefulness. And this portrait of God's grace that I see in chapter 20, God is used to remind me of so many of the ways in which he has been gracious to me. I see my four boys, and I know I do not deserve the kindness and the grace of being their father. I look at my bride, and I see God's undeserved favor. I look at you, this gathering of believers called New Branch, and I feel the kindness of God on my life. It is God's undeserved favor that I live in a country that it, where I'm free to worship Him. It is God's 
undeserved kindness to me that I don't have to worry about where my next meal will come from. It is God's undeserved favor that when I seek to draw in a breath, there is oxygen there that graciously fills my lungs. I consider these things and I am overwhelmed and undone by the kindness and graciousness of God to me. A, A person who has sinned against him so profoundly and consistently. And I thank God for the grace that he has shown me. What are the evidences of God's undeserved favor in your life? Don't let them go unnoticed. And don't let them go unthanked for. But all of these evidences of grace are like individual brushstrokes that are part of a larger portrait on a larger canvas. And that larger portrait and that larger picture is the grace that God has shown us in rescuing us from ourselves, from what we deserve. For Abraham, these evidences of grace in chapter 20 all point to the larger picture of God's grace in working out his plan of redemption through Abraham's life. Because he promised to give Abraham a son, and we'll see that son Isaac in the very next chapter. And that this son would be the beginning of a nation And that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed because the promise that would come through him is the promise of redemption that was achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. And all these evidences of grace in our life point to the larger picture of God's grace in redeeming us as part of the plan that he was working out even in this story with Abraham in this chapter. And if these individual brushstrokes of God's grace that you discern and God makes aware of in your life that you see, if they overwhelm you, how much more should the larger portrait of his sovereign and redeeming grace overwhelm us? So that's the first thing. Secondly, as I mentioned earlier, not only should we notice God's grace and thank him for that, but we should live in light of God's grace. There should be a sanctifying effect on our lives because of the displays of grace that we see for undeserving sinners like us. His amazing grace ought to fuel our faithfulness to him, ought to fuel our fight against sin, and ought to fuel our fidelity to our Lord. We should live differently, not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we want, to be, we want God to be glorified in our lives because he's been so kind and gracious to us. And then thirdly, finally, we should join him in blessing the nations. Since the aim of God's redemptive plan for mankind is and always has been the nations, then we should join him in that. And we should be spurred on to be a part of that, to pray for that, to engage in that, to give to that, and be willing to go wherever he leads us. Let's pray.